This episode of Repod is brought to you by SEO Orb, Buzzshot, Escape from Ebo Island, and Patreon supporters like you. Welcome to the Reality Escape Pod, your lifeline when you need a getaway from the real world. I'm David Spira, alongside my co-host, PG Law. Together, we're exploring immersive gaming from all angles, and we'll be joined by guests who really know their stuff. Today's guest is John Braver. He's a director, stuntman, stunt coordinator, and he's best known for creating the immersive theatrical Haunt Delusion, which is making its post-pandemic return in Pomona, California this fall. Welcome, John. Thank you. Thanks for having me out here in virtual land. I'm so glad you got to come on. (laughs) Thank you. So far, it's been fun. I mean, it's been five seconds, but it's been fun. Let's dig in. Let's do it. So... I have never had a chance to do Delusion, but I have heard so much about it over the years. It is constantly changing. And I know our listeners are at least passingly familiar with Delusion because we had Neil Patrick Harris on earlier this season, and he gushed about your work, its intensity, and its use of stunts and practical effects in that charming way that only NPH can gush about a thing he loves. I went out and got a ticket after I heard about it from uh, Neil. Yeah. Oh, me too. I bought a ticket to my own show after I heard that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious to hear from you what you feel makes delusion delusion, because it's not a normal haunt. That's correct. Yeah, actually, for years, I would fight that moniker of haunted house. I would use the word cinematic. These are certain words I use for this. Okay, cinematic, otherworldly, fantastical. That's really what Delusion is all about, as well as a rich storyline that weaves it all together. This is a moving play. You're not sitting down, you're moving through very unique venues, such as an old mansion or a creepy abandoned church or a theater. And so to the immersive community and everybody probably listening that's site-specific theater, that's basically what we're doing, but with a very rich storyline. We're placing the audience into these movies, you could say. It's a narrative structure with some branching moments in between. Think of it like an RPG. If you played big RPGs like Skyrim or something like that, you would have a main narrative, but then you would branch off. And sometimes you'd come back to the main narrative, but for us, you're kind of forced into it. But everybody has sort of their own experiences throughout because you can get captured or move through different spaces and stuff, but it is linear as opposed to something like Sleep No More, which is open world and exploratory, though we are experimenting with the open world aspect for this year. But yeah, in short, it's a immersive horror play that you're living inside of and you're a character in the story. So it's not like a maze where typically people think of haunts as the maze. There's the conga line of people, they're clutching each other and backwards and forwards and there's jump scares. It's not really like that at all. No, no. It's theater at its heart and it's about 220 people a night. So about 11 people every 15 minutes move through an hour-long story. It's pretty intimate. It's an intimate theater. I'm terrified. I can't wait. (laughs) You're captured. You're touched. Even in this pandemic era, you are touched. You have actual physical intimacy from another human. Uh, I'm already scared. (laughs) Yeah, that alone. It's just we don't have to do anything except just touch you. But it's all light. It's all safe. I don't want people to get freaked out about that. But I want you to be intrigued and seduced. And this year's production is called Reaper's Remorse because it changes every year. It's a different story each time. Correct. I think I'm going to try to bring back some old stories. Maybe the one that Neil and I did together in 2012. kind of want to bring that one back. But yeah, they've been new stories. This one's probably our most tragic and terrifying yet, yet very fun. God, why did I join at the scariest one? I know. (laughs) I I am a scaredy cat. I was never into horror. I never watched scary movies. And you know what got me into going on like haunts and these things for the first time was doing a scary escape room. And I realized that that? I can't even remember, but there's a lot of these escape rooms, you know, where there's like an actor inside and it's creepy. And I just was like, I loved it. I love the adrenaline rush and the heightened sensation. And after that, I've started going to haunts. I've become kind of a horror fan. In fact, I saw you speak at Midsummer Scream just last, oh, yeah. yeah, a couple of weeks ago. So oh, cool. It's funny because I'm kind of new to the escape room business too. This is not an escape room, but you guys are fully well-versed in this. And this is new to me. I haven't been to too many of these. So I'm becoming more and more intrigued. I get turned on by friends to go check them out. And 
I went to go see this thing called What Happened to the Gilmans or something out here in LA. And it was, it, it's super... Whatever happened to the Garretts. There it is. I was like, oh, this is really cool. Like I went with my daughter and we're going to one this Friday. There are a number of really cinematic escape rooms throughout LA. So you are spoiled for options there, especially on the cinematic side. This is part of the reason why David and I started doing this podcast in the first place is because... We want escape rooms to be these cinematic, immersive, grand experiences that yeah. it's like I can see the potential, right? Because, yeah. you know, and here's the thing. I love immersive theater. I love these cinematic experiences, but I like having a purpose. I like having a quest. I want something to accomplish and to do. And so I really get that satisfaction when I do escape rooms. And so I'm seeing them kind of merge together. And it's fascinating. That's part of why we were so excited to talk to you, because I think that's definitely part of what you do. That's it, it, interesting. In the beginning, 2011, when we started, there wasn't really immersive theater. It was kind of like Sleep No More and then Delusion on the West Coast and wasn't anything else. And then that's when Escape Room started to kind of pick up. I think it started in Japan, I believe. You got it. But then we did these plays and they were great success. We were very excited, very proud of them. And then the escape room business started to pick up more and more that it sort of overtook the idea of what we were doing in some way, where people were labeling what we were doing more of an escape room. And we had to kind of combat that and make sure that people understood, well, you're not running around constantly manipulating items and trying to figure out puzzles. It's not that. It's more about the story. But I kind of accept that at this point, Delusion definitely has escape room elements in it. There are moments you have to figure out how to move the story forward. It's the same thing in Escape Room. But as I said in the beginning, this thing is scored professional actors, professional stunt people, creature design by friends of mine who do like Hellboy and Pan's Labyrinth and that kind of stuff. Live creature effects in front of you. It's like nothing else. So it's a mixture of, yeah, Haunted House, Peppering, Escape Room, Theater, all the stuff that we love. You've alluded to a whole bunch of things that we actually want to investigate in more depth. So it's my understanding that you came to this line of work and artistry through a love of role-playing games as a child. I'm curious, what kinds of games have inspired you and what have they taught you about immersing an individual into a world of your creation? That's a great question. I'm 46. I grew up during the era of Sierra games and all that kind of stuff. And it was some of my best memories of adolescence was playing those games with my friends. So we would be down in my basement, play for like five, six hours, play these games like Space Quest and then Baldur's Gate after that. So just like escape rooms, it was a great way to get into another world and create another world. And I, I used to be a camp counselor. So I was a camp counselor up in Wisconsin. I grew up in Chicago. And during the year, I would play these games. And then when I went to camp, I would kind of take some of these elements I learned in the games and then bring them into the real world for the campers. So I would create these elaborate scavenger hunts or scary quests and just do a lot of quests. Everything was questing. It was like early LARP days and all that. I love that. I used to play EverQuest. I'm an old school gamer as well. Oh, hell this yeah. is back in 2002 or something. Oh man, yeah. When I played Baldur's Gate, that game changed my life. I remember I had been playing video games my entire life, but I never realized that a video game could tell me a story that was that compelling and that I was that invested in. Yeah, that's exactly right. So we're, yeah, the three of us are, we should all play games together. When delusion's over. <laughs> yeah. And then there was one game that inspired me more than I think anything in terms of how you can tell a story. That was uh, a game called Grim Fandango. Yep. That was one of the last of the LucasArts games. Yeah. If you've never played it, put that at the top of your list. They just remastered it and it's absolutely gorgeous. It's such a funny, touching, adventurous game and that'll definitely whisk you away. So I, I basically took these games and the experiences I had at camp, like creating these things. And I went back home to my parents' house in Chicago and I said, can you guys go stay in a hotel? And I'm just going to write a story in the house, turn it into a haunted house, but have the, <laughs> the neighbors in the city of Chicago come in. And my, my, my mom was like, fine with me. I'm, I'm going to Egypt. She was like, she's from Egypt. She's like, I'm going away for a couple of weeks anyway. And my, she left my dad. <laughs> my dad's like, uh, tell me more about this thing. Long story short, is <laughs> put him in a hotel. And I wrote like a 15 minute play in the house that moved through the house. And then we had all like, the suburbs of Chicago, like line up to come into our house. And it was just, it was just the very first of it in a more of a, that wasn't even professional, but it was so much fun. You were that house, that house on yeah. Halloween. Oh yeah. 
<laughs> oh, it was crazy fun. And and then my parents' house got a little bit damaged, so I used my neighbor's house the next year, <laughs> which is great. And then at that point, we got a little bit of notoriety there, and then the city of Chicago hired me to do a play in an old clock tower, Grand Lake, Michigan. And I was coaching gymnastics at the time in the city, and I brought some of the kids I was coaching to play, like these twin girls. And of course, twin girls are always the creepiest ones. That was the beginning of the whole thing, how it went from gaming into the real world. I just perpetually want to live in that world, like a lot of us. And so I'm just trying to create it for other people. I wish I could experience delusion. Like, <laughs> well, So how old were you at the time when you first started doing all of that? I think it was 92. It was the first year. Like end of high school? End of high school. Yeah. It, it's directly right from the gaming world into this. But then I was getting into stunt work, too. I learned about Jackie Chan and I joined a stunt group in Chicago and then I incorporated stunts into the show. My neighbor's play that I told you about, I was up on the roof. The end of the play is when the audience goes to the backyard and there's this scene on the roof where the mother's possessed and she throws the father off the roof. So the guy like dove off the roof and then it looked like he went through trees and landed on the ground and we had somebody off view that would like rustle leaves and sticks and make it seem like he broke his legs and all that. So were these like little 15-minute mini plays that you just ran continuously through the night on Halloween? Yeah, for Halloween weekend. That's fantastic. Yeah, it was crazy fun. I remember as a kid, the first time I ever got a scare on Halloween, I was walking up to the house that had just a table with a bowl of candy, bowl of Hershey Kisses, and they were like, take one. And you reached in and you took one. And there was a hand, you know, with a glove that with all the candies glued on it that would grab you. And that was about the extent of <laughs> the scares that we had in my neighborhood growing up. Yeah, you really sound like the most perfect candidate for, for delusion. Because my mom wouldn't go to my shows for a year. She missed the first three, and I was devastated. I'm like, it's not about scaring you. It's not about fear. We're not trying to go out and terrify you guys, even though I said it was the most terrifying this year. But it's it's not about that. And then finally, I got her to come to my show in 2014. And her face afterwards was just glowing. She was regretting missing the other ones. She loved the story. Yes, she thought it was terrifying, but she's with friends. She's like hanging out, holding onto each other, laughing and screaming. It's just, it's really all about that. You've talked a little bit about your stunt background and the background in gymnastics. I want to explore that a little bit. Your stunt resume is astounding. You've done work on Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, Star Trek, 24, Alias, The Dark Knight Rises, just to name a few. And you mentioned that you have this background in gymnastics. My wife is a gymnast. She's also one of the producers of this podcast, and she is curious to hear how you decided to make that leap into stunt work. Yeah, it's interesting. As I said, I grew up in Chicago and had this eclectic mix of a bunch of stuff. I was a music major, I was a guitar major, and then I was coaching gymnastics in high school. And then I, when I went to college, there was no team. It was a music school. And so I was uh, teaching gymnastics and somebody turned me on to Jackie Chan. Nobody knew who Jackie Chan was at the time in Chicago. So my friend Adam would take me down to Chinatown and we would get Jackie Chan movies on Laserdisc. I'm definitely <laughs> dating myself, but it was, that's the only way that it was. Um, I'm not saying it was, anyway, whatever. So we went there, we'd pick up like all these old Jackie Chan movies. And I saw it and I was like, God, this choreography is just mind blowing. People get paid to do this stuff. I couldn't believe it. I didn't really think about stunt work at all. Everybody knows Jackie Chan now. It was all very acrobatic in his style. You know, what's cool is hearing that you have a background in musicality. I've watched like YouTube videos talking about the musicality of Jackie Chan's choreo, like his fight scenes where they say the hits that, that, you know, like there is kind of a rhythm to the fight scenes too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. He was a big like Buster Keaton fan. So he would kind of choreograph all that. He's a brilliant, brilliant artist. And so I, I was like, yeah, people can get paid to do this. So I called information at the time. There was no internet. And I just called information and said, give me any organization that has the word stunt in it in Chicago. And they told me there was a thing called the Chicago Stunt Team. And I called them right away. I said, hey, guys, like, I just saw this Jackie Chan movie. Are you guys doing that kind of stuff in movies and television? They said, yeah, we're starting to do that. Yeah, come, come check us out. So long story short, I, I joined them and I finished my degree in music business and guitar and I was like, okay, great. I have that degree. I'm thinking about moving out to LA to live with my cousin and get into this stunt work, see what I can do. So I watched this movie called Mask of Zorro. You remember that Antonio Banderas movie? Really fun movie. Yeah. And I picked out a name from the stunt credits, any name. This guy's name was Webster Winery. And I was like, that's an interesting name. I'm going to move to LA. I'm going to meet that guy and he's going to give me my first job. 
So I, I got my degree. I drove out to LA in 1998 and moved on my cousin. Took me four or five months to track this guy down at the Stuntmen's Association. I told him the story. I said, dude, I, I saw your name in the credits. I moved out here for you. <laughs> and <laughs> no pressure. No pressure. I said, this is what I do. I do gymnastics. I, do, I was doing wushu kung fu as well, too. Forgot to mention that. That's like what Jackie does, too. So I was doing some of that. So I, he's like, oh, you know, interesting story. Okay, cool. And I, I left. And then I heard from him two months later. And he gave me my first job on a horror movie called House of a Thousand Corpses. It's a Rob Zombie movie. Yeah, I remember oh that movie. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, you mentioned your impressive investigative skills because how yeah. on earth did you track down somebody in 1998? You had to like go in the, the yellow pages or something. I know, yeah, basically. <laughs> you think about like old detectives who tracked right? this guy down. Wow. But yeah, it was I crazy. Was so That's impressed. how I kind of segued into it. And I was coaching gymnastics here in LA while I was uh, trying to get into the film business. And so it took a couple of years, but then it was like, boom, it's like rolling into a bunch of different movies and TV. It's awesome. Stunts. And practical effects play a big part in the work that you do with Dilution. When you're scripting this out, do you usually start with the stunt work and then work it into the plot? Or are you looking at the narrative and figuring out where do the stunts organically fit in? Yeah, man. Uh, another quality question. I get all these like interviews with bad questions. Like, you guys are awesome. <laughs> so, so this is a good, solid question because it's very important to the to what we're doing. And for a guy who's never been to our show, I'm very impressed. I will say, David does so much work researching these uh, questions. It's, it I shows. Do. You're not. You're not the only stalker on here. <laughs> <laughs> David is so good at, he always asks these questions and our guests are like, I have done so many interviews and nobody's ever asked me that before. Like, wow. So he's like, <laughs> okay. So you've heard this before. Yeah. Well, it's just, it's, it's refreshing. So thank you. Thank you. As much as I was doing action and stunt work, I very consciously decided in the beginning that this is not a stunt show. Stunts have to fit into the story. It's story first, always just, it goes back to those role-playing games we talked about. If you don't have a good story, you have nothing. And so they just had to fit. And that means some years there's one stunt, some years there's three or four. It has to organically fit. So it's, it's definitely uh, not stunts first, story first. Which is interesting to hear you say that because a lot of times when we hear about delusion, I feel like what gets a lot of the notoriety is the fact, you know, oh, like John Braver, a stuntman, so there's cool stunts in there. And that, that gets kind of the most airtime. Yeah. I'm a director at heart. That's really what I want to be doing. That's what I've been doing. And stunt work was a means to an end in some way. But I, I totally get that, that it's intriguing. Oh, this guy's a stuntman. And especially in the beginning, in the one that we did with Neil, that that was probably the most stunt-heavy one. So yes, people remember it for that. When I talk to people these days, they're like, oh, stunts, stunts, stunts. And it's funny because I want to embrace that. And at the same time, I'm like, well, it's also, you know, it's, it's, it's also a really cool story. And, you know, there's a lot of really cool practical creature effects. But yeah, every year we do have some element of stunt work. This year we do as well, too. This moment of stunt work is pretty interactive. It's really cool. So I hope you guys get to check it out. But yeah, it depends on the venue. It depends on the story. I'd like to thank our sponsor, SEO Orb. SEO Orb is a digital marketing agency focused on the escape room industry. The owner, Piyush is a serious escape room fan who understands the nature of the business and can work with you to refine your web presence. He can help you set and meet your search engine optimization as well as your marketing goals. David, Piyush, SEO Orb, they help owners with their search engine optimization, right? Yeah. What does that even mean? I mean, I bet a lot of owners out there probably don't even know what it means. It seems like a scary thing you don't understand, so you don't want to spend money on it. With the way that Google works is it looks at your website and it looks at the content and it tries to evaluate if that content is relevant to the words that people search in Google. So what you want to do is make sure that from a technical standpoint, your website is set up so that Google thinks it's a good website, that the technology running behind it is good tech representing a strong business. And you wanna make sure that you have strong content that has the right keywords that are attracting attention for the right audience. 
there is a little bit of technology involved. There's a little bit of content involved. There's a little bit of creativity involved. A lot of things come together to make a good SEO strategy. And that's why I strongly encourage people who aren't experts in this to work with someone who is. And I think Piyush is a really good option. So if you want to give him a call, you should reach out, see what he's all about. You can learn more at seoorb.com. Details in the show notes. Your work puts a heavy emphasis on rich characters and detailed storytelling where the audience feels present and part of the world. How do you go about building those worlds for your audience? That's a number of things. It's, number one, it's I have a book of stories that I've kind of thought about over the years. And um, sometimes they fit into the venues that I find, sometimes not. But I usually think about what kind of character would I like to be a detective or should I have powers? You know, the 2012 show with Neil, everybody had powers. You were old patients of a, of a psychiatrist that was unlocking dormant abilities in your mind. And so we'd have audience members who would reach out towards like a creature at a specific time that an actor would help them trigger. And then that character would go flying back through a hallway or um, whisking away and blowing out candles. That was part of a few different stories as well, too. So it depends on like how I'm feeling that year, like what, what kind of character should you be? And then the logistics of that, how do you explain that to people in the beginning, in the prologue? We have to have the show can only last like an hour long. You don't want to get into massive diatribes and exposition, have it be more intuitive. I think about like what would be fun for me to do. But mostly, again, I don't want to be repetitive, but it comes down to that basic story. You know, this year's story, Reaper's Remorse, it's about a woman who lives in this giant mansion, mostly alone, I'll say. But she's surrounded by artifacts that house souls of uh, the people that were used to be attached to these things, like an old violin or a piano. So she's taking care of these souls. And she's got this latest artifact, this her latest acquisition that's like the most personal thing to her. And this venue spoke to me in terms of that latest acquisition that she has. She won't go near it. She won't interact with it. So she throws this big epic party for you, the guests who are fellow lovers of the occult. And she needs your help to kind of like address this great fear of hers and um, confront this latest acquisition. The cool thing about that is that it's easy enough to understand, like right from the beginning. Previous years, I'd have a lot of exposition. There'd be tons of dialogue trying to explain who you are, the backstory. I needed to move a little bit quicker. So I'm learning every year on this thing. You're talking a lot about the venue, which is, seems to be a key component of each delusion. You don't have a standard location that you build within each year. You go off and you search for a place that fits the story and the vision that you want to tell. And you do this to the point where there was actually a year where you didn't run delusion because you didn't have a venue. What do you look for in a location? And what do real settings bring that manufactured can't? Yeah, each venue plays a part in the story for sure. I will say that that's, yeah, that's been the bane of my existence for sure, is uh, <laughs> finding a venue and securing it and dealing with just insane owners. It's such a tough balance because you're standing in front of this 110-year-old mansion. It's right in front of you. And you have to go in and experience a play inside of it. Like, it's a real mansion. There's no substitute for that. This is the real thing and everybody knows it and everybody feels it in every way. But you have to accept the neighborhood issues, the parking issues, the the doors that constantly crumble and the doorknobs that don't work, the broken staircase over here. Yes, it plays into the character. If I was a, you know, a, a delusional, as I say, then I would rather go to these things than a manufactured one. That said, I'm all for the manufactured ones because of um, if you can get a good creative team and a good art team, then you can accept it. I mean, you can accept the fact that, yes, I'm not in a real mansion. It's fine. I'm not in a, a real insane asylum. But look at the design. I mean, if you get good quality work, even in escape rooms that you guys have been to, you, if you allow yourself to be a kid again, then it's just all that other stuff just goes away. I'd like to have something that's you know more long-term so I don't have to constantly try to find a venue because that cuts into... I got to find it, then I have to secure it, then I have to write a play in there. And then by the time I write that play, it takes two or three months, then I'm backed up already. Everything's a rush. And that's what happens pretty much every year. But this year, this show, 
this venue is probably our best delusion location yet. And it, if it goes well, then we'll probably end up staying there for multiple years. I mean, I think people can feel the weight of the years of like a setting, right? There, yeah. There's these places, they're characters. They carry the energy within them. Like I was just in New Orleans recently. I'm sad to hear what's happening now, but it was my first yeah. time there and I could feel all of the energy there. Oh, it's everything. And the smell, I mean, every sense. Yeah, New Orleans is special. I really want to do a show there one day. Over the years, Delusion has explored a wide range of haunt narratives, some especially scary, some not so scary. This year, as you've mentioned, you're returning to fear. What is special about experiencing terror in a safe and controlled environment? Because we overall live such a sterile life. I always say that, you know, you don't really appreciate life until you get close to death. I felt it many times in stunt work. I've done things in movies and television that you just think about, like, oh, you know, as you're driving along, oh, I just, I don't know if you guys have ever thought this, like, I'm just driving along. I want to drive through that mailbox and just crash right through it. I can see PG's face, like, no, I haven't thought of that. No, I have, but I was, I had taken some uh, suspect mushrooms at the time. Oh, nice. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. We should pass that out before delusion. Oh, my God. You imagine. We've actually talked about doing that at one of our delusion shows. Not not for the guests, but for us as the crew. <laughs> that would be a huge mistake. I mean, we'd be diving out of windows in terror. It's just... Um... <laughs> Get the liability forms ready. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For real. Let's go out in style. I've just felt that when I, and I get that close to it. It's perfectly safe and you just, you get a taste of it. Then your adrenaline gets going, you know, it's a drug. I didn't really do drugs at all when I was in school. My drug was adrenaline. So I would like trespass all the time. I'd be chased by security guards constantly. And that's such a rush from that. Definitely translated, obviously over into stunt work, obviously over into you know delusion. It's trying to break people free of the, of the monotony and to push them out of their comfort zone. That's what this is all about. You're buying a ticket to get pushed out of your comfort zone. But I, again, I, anybody who's listening, who's afraid of going to these things, just don't, you know, my mother went to it. We've had 80 year old women that come together for like a, they, they play bridge in the day and then they go see delusion at night. You can handle it. Trust me, you can handle it. And it's also 12 and up. You can do it. You're mentioning the adrenaline junkie side of you. Was there a moment in your career as a stuntman where you realized that you may have pushed too far? You were doing something that was a little bit too much? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, there's been a few of those. Well, I've come close to shit going bad. There's this movie called The Kingdom, Jamie Foxx. It was a little while, I don't know, it's like five, six more, many more years ago. We were shooting in Arizona, and I was doing some stunt driving, and I was playing a terrorist and breaking into this American compound in Saudi Arabia. I was like sliding around a corner with me and this other guy who's shooting an AK out of the, out of the window, just mowing people down. I had to slide the car around a corner and then come flying into this to hit this car and crush this person in between two cars. So there's two cars and he runs between the two cars into his cage that was built below the level of the window. So you don't see it. He has to make it into this little cage and I have to hit the car at the exact time that he gets in that cage. Oh my God. And (laughs) it's just like, you're kind of rolling the dice. I mean, they're hiring me. I, you know, I can say this now. I'm not the best stunt driver in the world. My hands are like sweaty just hearing him describe this. It was really nerve wracking. I mean, everything was fine in the end, but I have to hit the car just at the time that he gets in there. I'm like, oh my God, please hurry up because I have to maybe come off the gas a little bit. But thankfully the reflexes kicked in, but I mean, he just made it in there. If he didn't make it in there, then it would have been a bad day for both of us. More more so him. One was (laughs) an Iron Man. There's a scene where Mach 1 comes out of the cave. You know, that that big clunky thing, the first suit. And I remember we were trying to shoot him. Like he's just, we're at the front of the cave and we're trying to take him down and nothing's hitting him, right? It's all, all the bullets are bouncing off. And then he goes, my turn. And he shoots his flamethrowers from his wrists all over us. So guys are on fire all around me. I'm on fire and it's just, being on fire is just not fun at all. And you get the paycheck and you're like, okay, that's fine. Um, <laughs> but, he, but after we shot this guy named Mike Justice, he's the, he was the stunt double for it, which is probably one of the best names ever for a stunt person, like Mike Justice. <laughs> I know, Braver's a pretty good name for a stunt man, too. <laughs> <laughs> no, some main character energy here. <laughs> that's right. That's gotten me some gigs for sure. Just the last name alone. 
So Iron Man, he's standing there. We, we all cut. And he's just standing there. Heavy suit, super heavy suit. And he's standing on a bit of a decline. And we're all just kind of looking at him. And he's just slowly falling back. <laughs> Giant Mach 1 Iron Man suit falling back. We're like, oh, shit, catch Iron Man, catch Iron Man. Like a bunch of us <laughs> ran in and we caught this giant metal structure from crashing to the ground. And he's like, oh, thank God. Thank you. Pick me up. So we picked him up. And then he walks off for a little bit. And one of the hoses in the back where the fire flamethrower was coming through broke. And then his whole back went on fire. Oh, my <laughs> so God. To like douse him out. Um, he was fine. Everything was fine. But it's just, uh, I hope they don't come back to me and be like, uh. <laughs> um, <clears throat> my name is Tommy Haunton. I live at Boston. <laughs> I don't know, John Braver. Uh, yeah, there's, there's a bunch of stuff like that. I mean, my, my favorite, definitely the best experience ever. Number one is Indiana Jones for sure. Cause that was my hero. So being in that movie was the biggest dream ever, ever. I can't even imagine. I feel like just being a part of that, you know, I think, uh, I think we, we come from similar media backgrounds. I didn't write it by the way. I just want to say yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm aware. And I feel like if, if you weren't responsible for the script, just being part of Indiana Jones sounds pretty cool. Yeah. There you go. That's right. <laughs> yeah. He was, I, he has to rip a uh, gun out of my hand with his whip. So he and I were practicing that and he's in his <laughs> whole outfit in the hat, the bomber jacket, all that. We're practicing. I'm pulling the barrel of the gun out from my side so he can wrap the whip around. And he's really good. And I'm just looking at him like, oh, my God, I'm just hanging out with him and practicing <laughs> a scene with him. And then I started leaning my face into it a little bit towards the barrel and like closing my eyes because a part of me wanted to get whipped and cut. So I had a, a scar for a great story to be able to tell people, oh, yeah, what happened there? Oh, yeah. Indiana Jones. <laughs> so he he caught me one time he didn't hit me but he he's like john why why are you leaning in that far <laughs> i was like <laughs> and i told him i told him i said like i'm just you know what you can hit me i think it'd be a really good story he's like ah, i don't do that I get back he's laughing <laughs> i feel so happy to hear that he actually does the whips himself and he's good oh, he's like good. I, yeah. I was like oh no he's gonna tell me that he doesn't do any of that and it's <laughs> it's it's all a stand-in <laughs> So, so you're telling me he's better with the whip than flying the plane. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Damn right. I'd like to thank our sponsor, Telescape by BuzzShot. Telescape is an advanced inventory system and game creation tool used by escape rooms worldwide. Whether you're creating a live avatar experience or a completely standalone point and click online game, Telescape can help bring your online escape experience to life. This week, we're featuring Haunted from District 3 Escape Rooms in Saskatchewan, Canada. With Halloween season coming up fast, it seems like a really good time to book yourself a spooky virtual escape game and Haunted does so much with the Telescape platform to customize the experience and really craft that experience for players. It does a lot of things to make it easier to play and a whole lot of things to build that world. This was a huge hit with the room escape artist Hivemind. You can learn more at telescape.com. Details in the show notes. I've heard you say that immersive theater is about patience and liking people, which is a quote that I really liked. How do you approach crafting that participant experience? What do you think about when you're thinking about putting the participant at the center of all of this? I'm thinking how crazy it is to put this amount of trust in strangers to do the things I need them to do to move forward. And it's funny about the liking people thing, because I don't know when I said that, but I'm a little older and more cynical now. I don't, I'm not totally in love with people anymore. <laughs> I'm just kidding. The last 18 months have certainly damaged my, my, my general appreciation of humanity. Yeah, yeah. But I still hold firm to like, this is their social DNA. We have to get people back together again. So it, it kind of goes back to a little bit of how I explained it before, which was pushing people outside of their comfort zone, put them in a position where they have to make decisions to move life forward, to move this story of your life. It's not just the story that I wrote, but this is part of your story. This is your life. This is a chapter of your life. Even though it's just an hour of a show, it'll linger for years to come as, as these shows seem to do. So I'm rolling the dice. I'm taking a risk with them to do what I'm hoping for them to do. And I think 
you know, we have really good quality actors. It comes down to them. That's really the heart of it. And they're good about nudging people to get them to break free of that constraint. They're brilliant at that. And there's different levels of a group. Let's say there's 11 people. The people in the front are the most active all the way back to the most passive and the ones who just want to observe. And that's fine. If you want to just observe, you're in it no matter what. If you just don't want to say anything or do anything, you don't have to. But throughout the experience, the actors feel the energy of each group. That's why each experience is different for each group, depending on who you're with and which actor you have, because we double cast roles. But they find these people who might be timid, but they can tell from their energy that they probably want to do a little bit more so that they'll speak more to them. The eye contact of an actor and how are you connecting, even if it's moving over to somebody who's more passive and putting your hand on their shoulder or putting your hand under their elbow or like reaching out for their hand, giving them that little easy access into another world. It's all about pushing people outside the comfort zone. That's really what it is and, and making them a hero of their own story. Do you direct your actors to push them a little bit more? Because I know most normal people that come in, their people are pretty standoffish. They, it takes people yeah. a while to kind of warm up to something. Oh, yeah. Every audition, I know within the first 10 seconds, if this is a person I want to work with, I can feel the energy of them. We can all feel energy of people, but I feel it very strongly from the actors and therefore I know they will be able to feel it from the guests. So I just tell them, see who's comfortable. You know, don't push too hard, but nudge. Use these little techniques to allow them into the world. What would be one of those techniques? In the Blue Blade story, which was my Indiana Jones meets sci-fi adventure delusion in 2018 and 19. You get into this like ticket booth kind of area, and there's a character above the ceiling who's like shooting at you from above. So holes in the ceiling are like popping open. And it looks like you're shooting and you have to take this little puck that's electrocuted and you have to put it on, up on the ceiling. Certain people in the beginning get forced to get this puck. Like they have to be the ones to take it and they have to put it on the ceiling. They have to find a way to get it up to the ceiling and then which, which electrocutes the actor above. That's one way to kind of force people into is by giving them a prop that they have to use. Sure, they can hand it off to somebody else, but like most of the time they don't. And so having a task to do. That's really the greatest mechanism. Some, it could be something very simple, like take a flower and put it in an urn. You know, right. One actor's needs more information about this one thing. And you've, you've learned something in the play earlier. So, you know, this word that, cause you were pulled to the side and whispered something in your ear that relates to something later in the show, you know, the word. So you tell the actor. So little things kind of ice break that. I say secrets and quests have power. Right. Exactly. That's, that's really the way in. I'd like to thank our sponsor, Escape from Mebo Island by Sherlock in Amsterdam. Escape from Mebo Island is a unique, live, virtual escape room played through a web browser. The impressive technology uses a first-person view and creates an adorable avatar using your own webcam video. It's a ton of fun, and it's fantastic for anyone from families to corporate events. So David, you know what one of the best things that I loved about Mebo Island is the fact that every player has first person point of view. It, it, it's so unusual. You never get to do that really in these virtual escape rooms. Usually it's five people looking through the eyes of one avatar. Yeah, everybody gets to play as themselves. You can roam around the island. The island is just fun to hang out in even if you set aside the game so like you can just go and do your own thing which is oddly fun in Mebo Island. It really replicated that feeling of being in an escape room where every person splits up you know everyone's searching they're coming together they're doing things and you're looking at first person point of view and then the best part is you can look at each other I can look across at your avatar and I can see your face on top your web camera, on top of your avatar. It's hilarious. It is so much fun. I agree. I love it. For escape room owners, Sherlock has an affiliate program for Escape from Mebo Island, making it an easy way to get a top tier virtual product into market without investment. For everyone else, if you'd like to give Escape from Mebo Island a try, Repod listeners get a 20% discount using the code MarvinRules. You can learn more at MeboIsland.com. D 
details and discount code in the show notes. We've talked a little bit about this already. Thus far, you've created unique productions for short runtimes, and this really is all being made to surprise and delight and go above and beyond for your audience, which is a formula that I'm very drawn to in both my own work and other people's. While I'm also aware that this is not a recipe for making mountains of money, I'd like to hear how your approach to the balance of art and commerce has evolved over time and where your perspective is now. Another spectacular question. Thank you. No, thank you, man. Uh, That's been the struggle. You just nailed it right there about the art and commerce. Every artist, art and commerce, art and commerce. How do you balance the whole thing? You know, I have a family, got to make money. No, I have not been you know, swimming in a, a pool of money with delusion. So it's been able to squeak by in previous years. With higher ticket prices, we've been able to like just get by. So I've been lucky enough to to work in the film business. I, I still work in it, so I'm able to kind of sustain myself there, but I, I don't work as much in it anymore, especially recently because I've joined this company now, 13th Floor Entertainment Group which is my first real job, you can say. Since... I still haven't had one. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that amazing? There's no such thing as like getting a paycheck every two weeks. I, I haven't had that, honestly, since I was coaching gymnastics in 1998. With 13th Floor now, I joined this company after talking to their CEO. We've, he's been a fan of Delusion for a few years now, and he loves the show and he loves that space, that immersive theater space, but he knows the, he knows the business side of it. We showed it to him in 2017. He's like, nah. <laughs> to him in 2018 he's like nah and then eventually i was like you know what'd be cool it's like why don't we create these immersive experiences not just delusion but plenty more branded with 13th floor or branded with delusion or just other new exciting experiences why don't we create a new division in the company he's been trying to evolve the company outside of haunted houses as well too because they do very well so that was about a year and a half conversation and eventually we we're like yeah let's do this so I'm now their director of immersive entertainment, tasked with creating a new division in this company to create really meaningful, intimate experiences with Delusion being the launch title. So we're sort of resetting the button on Delusion using this as the way in and start off this division, right? So it's great. So he, he believes it. You got to find the right person to believe in that. For a while, it was a struggle. And now it's like he's relieved a lot of the pressure of producing these shows. They have a whole apparatus behind me. He's like, I'm going to pay you to do what you do best, direct and write these things. And let's see where this goes. So this is our first year doing it. If it does well, Delusion does well, then then great. We'll keep going. If it doesn't, then uh, I'm out of a job. <laughs> <laughs> That's really exciting and interesting to hear because with escape rooms, most of what we cover, it's still very much a cottage industry. So a lot of these, again, are you know mom and pop shops. There are some large franchises, but a lot of them are just individuals that love what they do and they want to create a a fun story, a fun experience for people. So you said that you have recently raised prices. Is that, is that correct? Or you've always kept them at that level? No, they've been around the $100 level and we've raised them for this one. So my thing is, I know some escape rooms have been really crafting more of a premium experience. And a lot of times they are so afraid to raise prices. And my thing has been like, an escape room is basically a very intimate form of theater. Oh, yeah. There's all this production value. There's actors. There's all these effects going on for a small group of six people. Why wouldn't you be charging theater prices? You know, and instead people are paying $30 a ticket. I'm like, you go to a, a fancy show, that, that's easily $100 a ticket. They should be. How do you feel like the response has been? Because I know you guys have a lot of production value. So do you feel like with raising the price, has that been an issue? I, I used to think that way. I don't anymore. Every year we kind of raise ticket prices and every year the audience becomes more respectful of the art form. So we've, we found in the beginning, it was just, they treated it like an, like an escape room. People would damage shit everywhere. <laughs> the higher ticket price they have to pay, the more respect they have for the experience. So I'm of the mindset of it's worth it. We've earned it uh, and people will pay for it. And I think to your point, escape rooms should be more expensive. Well, the good ones, you know, I've been yes. to some, a couple of good ones. I'm like, yeah, you guys are, deserve it. You earn it. You know, you, you start off with a, a lower price and you get the word out and everything. And then, yeah, go ahead and raise it by like five bucks, 10 bucks. It makes a huge difference. But this, like you said, is cottage industry. Interactive theater is such a low throughput. It's more of a hobby than it is an industry. 
at this point. David, what you were saying about art and commerce, it's the battle of throughput. Like I've worked for Disney and I was doing a project with Netflix last year. And it was all about like, how many people can we get through this thing? It's massive numbers. And so with Delusion, it's fine. We can keep these lower numbers for now, but we have to create more experiences and then other mediums that can get out there. We can get more eyeballs on this brand. You've mentioned joining with 13th Floor Entertainment and given their scale, and you've kind of alluded to this, but I'm going to push you a little harder, see if we can get anything out of you. I have to imagine that this means that we'll be seeing more work from you, possibly in other cities. Can you give us any insights into what we can expect in the future from this new division that you're heading? Since I started in January, it's been focused on the Delusion Show as well as strategizing for the next like three or four or five years. So I have three other projects that I'm currently in development with. One is delusion related and the other two are, are not right now. So it's going to be a combination of um, a few things. I'll say they have a bunch of haunted houses around the country. So I'm going to be visiting a few of these and creating ancillary experiences you can call them VIP experiences outside of the haunted houses that can be more delusion-like, just give that special experience to people as an add-on ticket price. So building upon the haunted houses that they have already, we've found a new venue here in Hollywood area that we're working to secure to create a, um, I don't know how much I should say this, but like basically create like a rival to the Magic Castle here in LA. And this Whoa. one would be more of a more of a year round, year round thing. So not just a seasonal thing like delusion. So we want to try to find these experiences that will just run for a full year. Some of them are just pop ups. Another one I'm terribly excited about can travel easily, portable, scalable. This is our pilot year with Thirteenth Floor. They they have rolled the dice. They're taking a chance with this. But yes, there's a lot of very cool things in store now that I can kind of relieve myself of the venue search aspect, relieve myself of the producerial aspects of the show and hire producers. Can we get back to this? So you guys are thinking of doing a permanent venue, like a permanent location that's just a rotating immersive experiences within it, like just like how the Magic Castle does with magic, but this would be for small immersive experiences. Yeah, that's a good way to explain it. Yeah, that's one of the ideas that we're floating around with the venue. We just got to get it locked down. Well, unless it does, then we'll move forward with it. You can kind of think of like dinner theater kind of stuff, but mini theater all scattered throughout different parts of this venue. I am so excited about this. Ask you a selfish question. Any chance we can get a delusion in New York City? Oh, dude, I, my God, I would love to do that. I'd love to do that. If we, after this year, I've been looking at places. Do you have anything that you find out there that might be cool locations? Um, that's part of the plan is to get like a location manager out there and Delusion needs to be on the East Coast. It absolutely... I agree. Well, I'll say this, like, <laughs> I've been saying this every year, like, I'm from Chicago. I miss the seasons. I miss real fall. And, like, Delusion to me is great, but the L.A. atmosphere of, like, it's hot, there's fires. It's, like, it doesn't feel like fall. I want to do a show, like, in the fall, like, real fall. Go up to Vermont in, like, early October and do a show in the, with the leaves falling down all around you. Like, how cool would that be? I'm very into this. <laughs> Well, if any of our listeners has a venue, has a location, please let us know. Where can people find you on social media? Uh, I don't do social media. Cool. <laughs> My marketing That's department fun. does. No. Uh, you would, well, you would go to enterdelusion.com. That's our website. At enterdelusion on you know, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all those, all those things that the marketing department does that I try to steer clear of. But that's where you can find us. Thank you, John. This has been such a pleasure. Oh, for me too. Thank you, guys. This is awesome. Great questions. We are closing out season two of the Reality Escape Pod. And PG and I would like to thank all of you for listening. And as we enter into a short off season, we ask you to share this podcast around. We are trying so hard to build an audience and it is working because you are helping us. So please continue to do that. Share this around. Give us some reviews on Apple Podcasts, post it on social media, whatever floats your boat. And if you really do want to help us out, a little bit of money backing us on Patreon goes a very long way. 
all of this work is possible because of the contributions of our sponsors, patrons, and listeners. If you like what we're doing and you want to see it grow, I'll ask you to do something within your means. If you're financially stable and self-supporting, we'd love to have you become one of our patrons. We offer a ton of different perks, ranging from our lovely Discord channel to more elaborate things like the Spoilers Club. This month, we're playing and discussing Escape from the Maze of the Minotaur by Solvar Shirts. Anne and Chris Lukeman, the creators, were on Season 1, Episode 4 of this podcast. And if backing us on Patreon is something out of reach, we totally get it. Consider dropping us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or sharing an episode with someone that you think will love it. Help us grease the algorithms. There are lots of ways to support our work and we appreciate you no matter how you choose to help us out. And on that note, we're gonna take a moment to thank some of our biggest Patreon supporters. Paula Swan, Rex Miller, Breakout Games, Derek Tam, Byron Delmonico, Scott Olson, and Wesley James. None of this work would have been possible without the support of our incredible community. Thank you all so much. If you'd like to join the ranks of our community of supporters, you can learn more at patreon.com slash room escape artist. The Reality Escape Pod is produced by Lisa Spira, edited by Steve Ewing of Stand Inside Media, and brought to you by roomescapeartist.com, your home for well-researched, rational, and reasonably humorous escape room and immersive gaming content and events. Before we get to the post-credits story, I want to warn you that this one is um, racy, definitely rated R. So please stop listening now if that is something you don't want to hear. It's a good story, but it is a very racy story. See you in season three. We, so we did a show in 2014 called Lies Within, where one audience member gets captured into this puppet room and um, is sat down on a long table full of all these other puppets all surrounding them. And there's this character named Marion, who's the grand puppeteer. So this audience member gets placed onto this chair at the head of the table as the new puppet in this world. And she's sitting there. We strap their arms down to the armrests. And they have some time to improv. Like Marion has time to improv while the rest of the guests are doing some other quest, right? And he basically has this like knife and he's like stroking your hair with the knife okay this fake knife so he just he starts to put his hand through her hair he's got these weird hands she starts moaning she starts getting a little excited by this and marion's like well this is interesting so he takes he puts his hand on the other side and just like takes her hair and starts stroking her hair with a knife a little bit leans into her and smiles as he's leaning in over he <laughs> He notices she's rubbing her legs together. Stop! <laughs> oh my god! And um, so he's like, "Okay, all right, this is happening." And eventually, before the other audience members come in, she completes herself. What's a little Harry Met Sally moment? <laughs> yeah, in front of this giant seven and a half foot tall marionette creature surrounded by puppets. <laughs> Yeah. It takes so much to shock me, and I am like mouth agape right now. <laughs> <laughs> come, come, enjoy yourself. At delusion. <laughs> wow, what, is, what a selling point. <laughs> That's it. I'm sold. I'm going to go buy two more tickets. <laughs>